0: Welcome to the Life and Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. But good morning, Life and Deep Ellum. Uh, for those of you that may not know or are new this morning, we are in the middle of a, a sermon series titled God Gave Me You, which is a series essentially about living in community together as we look at various stories in the book of Acts. This morning, we'll be in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament, right after the Gospels. But before we look there, I want us to reflect on what is so significant about community, about togetherness. There are many examples of community that we can look to that are outside of the church. Take, for instance, our neighborhood. This is much more than where I live, hang out, go to church and coach. This is my community and has been for eight years. There have been celebrations, weddings, both my own and others, baby showers, congratula yes, exactly. Congratulatory drinks and feasts to celebrate someone's new job or promotion. There have been bittersweet moments such as celebrating a close friend who is moving to a new city. And there have been moments of mourning as this neighborhood has seen quite a bit of loss since I've been here, whether through a community member taking their own life, having their life taken, or processing the loss of a loved one or a divorce together. But notice the word together. Another example of community, of togetherness, we often see in our culture is with a sports team, which is an exciting time right now if you live in Dallas and are a fan of Dallas sports. Just saying. Whether it's a traditional team sport, such as basketball, football, soccer, or baseball, the list goes on. Or more individual sports, such as tennis, figure skating, or mixed martial arts. Though I could talk endlessly on the former examples, I believe it's easier for us to wrap our heads around the concept of community or togetherness with a traditional team sport. So let's look at the latter. Many of you, maybe not all of you, know that I coach Muay Thai, which is the Thai kickboxing. We go through our target. We don't just touch the target. Anyway, just down the street at Moeller MMA. Uh, But before I coached, I tirelessly trained and even, as some would say, rather stupidly stepped into the ring for a Muay Thai fight of my own. Some may say because I stepped into that ring alone, though, that I was alone. However, I had my community. You see, not only was my coach in my corner, literally, but there were teammates in the crowd cheering me on. But before that, there were countless hours of literal blood, sweat, and tears shed together with my coach, with my training partners, with my community. And beyond the training that went into that fight, well before that, we had community. It was common for many of us to go down to, surprise, Deep and Brewery, after class and grab a beer. Surprise again, for those of you that know me. And get to know one another outside of the gym. Talking about life. Being in community Together. And that's the mentality and camaraderie I still value and embody each and every time I step on and off that mat with my students, my community. In his book, Faith, Hope, and Politics, in the chapter on togetherness, my personal friend and mentor Brent McDougall tells the story of Isaiah Thomas, the former Detroit Piston basketball player, talking about the secret to winning at basketball. Thomas succinctly said, the secret of basketball is that it's not about basketball. McDougal expounds and says, ultimately the teams with athletes who enjoy playing together forget about their own stats and help other players succeed and they win the most championships. This is true whether it's a traditional team sport or a solo sport and beyond sports, This is true in life, but putting our own stats aside, which outside the sports arena could be our own personal beliefs and ideologies to be in community with someone else to be together is hard. It's messy. And that's where we find our early church siblings today. So turn with me to Acts chapter six, and we'll be looking at verses one through seven. things were going well and the number of disciples were growing, but a problem arose. The Greek-speaking believers became frustrated with the Hebrew-speaking believers. The Greeks complained that the Greek-speaking widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. The twelve convened the entire community of disciples and said, we could solve this problem ourselves, but that wouldn't be right. We need to focus on proclaiming God's message, not on distributing food. So, friends, find find seven respected men from the community of faith. These men should be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Whomever you select, we will commission to resolve this matter so we can maintain our focus on praying and serving, not meals, but the message. The whole community was very pleased with this plan, so they chose seven men. Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Greek-speaking convert from Antioch. These men were presented to the apostles, who then prayed for them and commissioned them by laying their hands on them. The message of God continued to spread and the number of disciples continued to increase significantly there in Jerusalem. Even priests in large numbers became obedient to the faith. So open up our eyes, our hearts, and our minds, Lord, as we listen to your word and may the meditation of my heart and of my mind be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So right off the bat, We see the potential for conflict when our author, Luke, makes it a point to call two different groups of people by their, at the time, societal labels. In this translation, the voice, they're called the Greek-speaking believers and the Hebrew-speaking believers, respectively. The Greek-speaking Jews were mostly born in the outer provinces outside of Judea, our modern suburbs, if you will. This group of people were ethnic Jews who practiced Judaism while largely adopting both the Greek language as well as the Greek culture. The Hebrew-speaking believers, or simply the Hebrews, were Jews born in Palestine, our city or urban dwellers, if you will, who also spoke their native tongue, remained fundamentally Jewish in practice and culture, and, as our commentaries suggested, look down on the Gratians as inferior or as beneath the Hebrews. So given this context, it's not hard to imagine that the Greek-speaking believers complaining that their widows were being neglected, overlooked, or as this translation puts it, discriminated against. First and foremost, we need to contextually understand that in the ancient Near East, widows often could not survive unless their immediate family members cared and provided for them. The church, here in its earliest form, assisted in this need of caring for their community's most vulnerable, such as the widows. However, if a predominantly Hebrew-speaking church is discriminating against the Greek-speaking widows, we have a major problem. How could Christ followers neglect or discriminate against those that don't look like them or speak the same language or have a different culture altogether? Not only did it happen then, it still happens. Spoiler alert. But before we get there, as I'm going to ask you all to inwardly reflect, I had to do the same in this preparation. You see, when I was a young pastor at a First Baptist in a small rural town, approximately a 20-minute drive from the Dallas city limits, there was much neglecting, much discrimination, even by me. I've told stories of my time on staff there and without that experience, my eyes would not have been open to the discrimination that happens within our faith communities by those who proclaim to mimic Jesus in their daily lives. And while these experiences were vital, the ugly truth is I too discriminated against others. Many of you know the happy ending of my story, if you will, as it specifically relates to advocating for some of our most marginalized communities. However, Like any good story, the antagonist had to wrestle with his dark side. I wore Star Wars socks, anyway. Once upon a time, though sometimes hard to imagine now, I can tell you countless stories of the very hurtful things I said to someone back then, mind you, in the name of Jesus, or so I thought, because of their gender identity, their cultural or political ideology, And even their sexual orientation. I, like our Hebrew speaking believers in our story here, viewed my definition of Christianity as superior. If you did not check the boxes that I was taught, whether through seminary or before, and blindly followed, then you weren't truly a part of what I viewed as my community. I didn't understand then that that's not exactly how community works. True community, togetherness, is messy. But more on that later. As we continue in verse 2, we see the apostles, that is the church leadership of the time, get involved. However, we don't see them get into the minutia of the problem. They rightly say they could solve this problem themselves, but point to their focus being on proclaiming God's message. Now, they don't use this verbiage to then sweep the issue under the rug. The apostles grasp that there is a problem, and we then get our first biblical glimpse of the appointment of what some of our modern church would still call deacons. Now, understanding that the church at this time was most likely predominantly Hebrew speaking, some may think that the apostles would just appoint those that represent the majority to handle the situation, right? That's what we still do. Rather, the apostles, best we know from the listed names of those who were appointed, as well as commentaries by theologians who have spent countless hours studying the text, appointed people who were representative of the community that was being discriminated against. Though most likely, the minority of their faith community. The apostles show us here that the community's voice is important. Even though, and maybe especially because, they are being treated as inferior. How in the world can we truly advocate for people by solely bringing in people who represent the majority? It is right and true that we sometimes need allies outside of our particular demographic or community, whatever it may be, to help advocate for us. But we also need those that understand the struggle best at the helm, driving the cause forward. In our context, just like our Greek-speaking friends in this passage, if we truly want to connect with deep elum outside of a Sunday service, we need people who are connected to the neighborhood to lead the charge by vision discerned through the Holy Spirit alone. And as we come to the end of this story, the last verse in our text tangibly shows us what can happen when we lean into the Spirit To guide us towards unity. Not only did the faith community increase significantly. But even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see priests who would have embodied the traditional religious dogma of their time. To the point of discriminating others. Of course in the name of their faith and religious beliefs. At the beginning of our God Gave Me You series, we looked at the conversion of Saul, or as you may know him, Paul. You see, Paul discriminated against and even killed followers of the way, as it was called then, or as we call it today, Christ followers or Christians. Yet by God's grace, scales fell off Saul's eyes. He was given new vision and a new name, both figuratively and literally. And eventually led the charge of including all into the faith family that proclaims Jesus Christ as their risen savior. There's even a story of Paul challenging Peter. Yes, the Peter who was with Jesus during the entirety of his earthly ministry. See, Paul challenged Peter on his view of who could be a part of the way. The church. Hear me clearly, not to compare myself to Paul. But this is similar to my story. As aforementioned, I once discriminated against people because they did not fit the definition of what I believed it meant to be a Christ follower. And then shortly after I came to Deep Ellum to plant a church. The scales fell off my eyes and I was given new vision to challenge the status quo dogma over the the discrimination of a group of people that led to literal homelessness. Simply and directly, I was shown by the grace of God that my homophobia in the so-called name of Jesus was wrong and I therefore challenged the institutional church of which I was a part of, to see that their institutional discrimination was literally breaking apart families and forcing children out on the streets. All because of a gross interpretation of scripture that wrongfully and shamefully overshadowed someone's humanity. Living together in community is hard. It takes intentionality And to quote my friend Brent again, he states at the end of his chapter on togetherness, when we are together, we find strength and hope that we cannot discover on our own. The apostles understood that. That doesn't mean it was perfect, and it definitely doesn't mean that all Hebrew-speaking believers ceased discriminating against the Greek-speaking believers. But now the question is, how does that apply to us today? Well, for starters, as I've tiptoed around at this point, we are not much different today. Though we may not have Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking Jews, we still have our divisions. Typically today, our divisions are more along the lines of political ideologies that we mask with religious language, stating that our ideology is sacred biblical theology. But is it? And even if it is, is it important enough to elevate above Jesus' commands to love God and love people? In our plight to do the former, we tend to ignore the latter. Loving God, of course, in our own definition of interpretation of what that means, is much easier than to love people. People are messy, people disappoint, people downright suck. Loving the people I choose to be around is difficult enough. So then, why would I even attempt loving someone who looks, acts, or thinks differently than me? So, this begs the first set of questions we must use to examine our own motivations. Am I blinded by my own personal ideologies that I am neglecting my neighbor? Yes. We don't have to look too far to find many examples of people in power jockeying for a stranglehold on others' basic human rights. Some laws of which have been in place for 40, almost 50 years. And others that personally attack someone's humanity, what they look like, where they're from, who they are, who they love. To understand that the world we live in today has not changed. The hard pill to swallow is America never became great. Maybe America never was great because humanity has always had a part of us that is not great. We can see it all throughout one of the most ancient of texts that we as Christians say we uphold in our daily lives, but do we? Because if we cannot learn from our historical mistakes, we are doomed to repeat them again and again and again. In a weekly devotion I subscribe to, we looked at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, which states, Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion, or a better word is stewardship, over all the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his own image, and the image of God, he created them. Expounding upon this text, the author stated, I believe the idea that we are all equally created in God's image is the foundation of democracy, and of every movement for the rights, equality, and freedom of every person. The question is then, do we believe? Do we truly believe that all are made in Imago Dei, that is the image of God? These are tough pills to swallow, yet there is hope. There is grace found in the one we as Christians proclaim to be our risen savior. We, like our 12 disciples in this story today, have an opportunity, a duty rather, To call and encourage one another into setting aside our personal ideologies to better love our neighbor. This then brings forth our last set of self-reflection questions as we close. Who am I neglecting? In my neighborhood where I live? Here in Deep Ellum? Here at Life in Deep Ellum? Let's look at the latter two. Do we truly understand and embody what a creedal community is? Because like the feud between the Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking believers in our story, maybe those of us with a more conservative theological understanding and those of us with a more progressive theological understanding are quick to feud with the other rather than, Than asking the Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance on how to live in community together. Here's the thing seeking, understanding, and living in a creedal community with one another is one side of the coin that we talk a lot about. The harsh reality is that there is another side of that coin. And that side of the coin is that a creedal community is not for those of us that cannot and blatantly choose not to do so. Hear that and let me say it again. A creedal community is not for those of us that cannot and choose not to live in communion with all despite our differences. You see, if we cannot truly live in creedal community with the person who has a different ideology and theology from the person next to us in the same worship service to the point to where we are becoming the barrier from the Holy Spirit doing what she wants to do, then maybe we need to look to the plethora of churches in the Metroplex with membership and leaders who look and act and think as we do. You see, beyond these four walls, we need to understand that Deep Ellum was a community built on diversity. Deep Ellum was the neighborhood where black folks and immigrants would come when they were not welcomed just down the street. And Deep Ellum is still a neighborhood of diversity. But if we cannot even love our neighbor right here in this very room worshiping alongside us or maybe our interim pastor whom we have been blessed with for almost a year to lead us, maybe because of her race and gender identity, are we then able to truly love those uh, who are outside our four walls? Do we, as a predominantly white faith community, love our black and brown neighbors, our immigrant neighbors, our houseless neighbors, our LGBTQIA neighbors, our atheist neighbors, or our neighbors who had an abortion. The list goes on. Because these societal labels that we may just stop there at are representative of real life humans who are an active part of the very neighborhood we claim to love. And this is the charge. Let us do the hard work Of intentionally seeking community. Togetherness. Let those with ears to listen here. Listen to the Holy Spirit calling us into togetherness. The word of God for the people of God. Pour your spirit on us Lord. To love as you love. To mend the wounds of societal division. Here in this room, here in our neighborhood, here in the broader city of Dallas and beyond. Open our ears and our hearts that we may tune into your Holy Spirit. In your precious name we pray, amen. We will have a moment of reflection. You may feel free to leave as you feel led. But there will be a song to just help us reflect on the charge, on the questions. And as you feel led to leave, go in peace and serve the Lord. Mm